every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Michael King, Senior Director of Cloud Marketing at VMware. Inside the $64 billion cloud computing and virtualization software giant, Michael is responsible for the VMware cloud marketing team and was tasked with transforming the customer perception of VMware's cloud services and products. On this episode, Michael expands on the demand gen strategy that he calls the relentless pursuit of whatever works, illustrates his audience action measurement playbook, discusses the importance of a consistent customer experience, and explains why your channels must reflect your audience. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Michael King, Senior Director of Cloud Marketing at VMware, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today... I am joined by a special guest. Michael, how are you? Good. How are you, Ian? I'm excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk about the really cool stuff that you're doing at VMware and uh, get into your background. So let's get into it. What was your first job in DemandGen? Oh, gosh. This is going to take me back a ways. Uh, my first job in DemandGen was actually at a company called Neopoint. Uh, we had built the world's first smartphone. This is eight years, seven years prior to the launch of the iPhone. It connected to Microsoft Outlook and uh, it had a WAP 2.0 browser. So wireless access protocol 2.0 browser. Um, anyway, so one of the cool things that, that I was in charge of was driving demand to, and I know this is gonna blow everybody's mind, an e-commerce website that let you buy the phone and service online. Hey now. This was pretty groundbreaking back in the day. Um, but again, this was the first, the first of these, and, and so we made lots of mistakes. But it was a great way to really kind of learn how you bring together uh, partner service, and I think at the time it was Sprint, a product like ours, a brand new type of mobile phone, and really build a, a demand gen engine that gets people to kind of land on site, explore this, uh, this new product and what its benefits might be for them, and then buy it for, you know, at the time, I think it was $450, which was you know, for a phone, outrageous. But you know, it was th that that was that was the first first sort of real demand gen type job that I had. It'd almost be the cheapest phone on the market these days. <laughs> <laughs> it would be the cheapest smartphone on the market these days. I, I walked out of that one, so so it was uh, you know, it was late '99, I think it was. And you know, there's the big dot com blow up, and all these companies went under, and, and ours eventually did too. And I just remember, I remember I was quoted talking about it saying, you know, I don't really think the smartphone is going to, uh, to ever be a mass market device. And, uh, you know, I'm just, every time I think I'm a prognosticator, I, I read something like that. And I'm like, well, I really missed that one now, didn't I? Isn't that crazy? You know, when you look, especially like with all that, uh, 
the rise of of how all the different devices came about. I mean, you know, you would have thought that there's, you know, you look at like BlackBerry or things like that, that had this massive lead and it all just shifted so fast. It's, it was a crazy time and an interesting time to cut your teeth in demand gen, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're kind of looking at a three, like, like three different factors there. You're looking at obviously the growth of the web, which had kind of already begun and was in full force. And you had, you know, pets.com and all these other big web properties that were, that were doing well. But at the same time, you had this massive growth of mobile. And then at the same time, you had e-commerce really coming in. So you had these kind of three competing factors where demand was changing. Demand up to that point in time had been, how many people can I get in front of my BDRs? Because you're not transacting. And, and, and the goal was to get them in front of the BDRs, get them to a POC or a trial, get them to sign up for a license, and then hopefully get them to renew the next year. And so your demand job, if you will, kind of ended at the point in time in which the BDR gave them a holler. And sure, you would, you know, you'd talk to the BDR afterwards and, oh, was that a good lead or a bad lead? But this really changed things in that demand didn't stop once the person kind of raised their hand, right? Demand continued through the website, through the pricing and the packaging, through the benefits articulation on the website, to the actual purchase, to the, you know, when it was shipped out, to the confirmation and all of those other things like that. And I think that's honestly when I started thinking about demand as a holistic type of role, not just kind of that top of funnel, middle funnel role, but really thinking about demand as end to end from the first touch to the customer to the, to when the customer is no longer your customer. Um, And hopefully maybe you try and even get it back afterwards. But I think that was the first time I'd really started thinking about taking traditional demand and turning it a little bit on its head. So flash forward to today, I'm sure every one of our listeners knows about VMware. We were talking, you know, offline before this about just kind of the state of, of VMware right now in such a unique place. Can you share a little bit about your current role and, uh, and where VMware's at? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> me and my team were, uh, were brought on and built out about three and a half, four years ago. You know, in the years previously, uh, VMware had started to build out its own cloud network and had subsequently sold off that cloud network and sort of exited the cloud, the services role, um, you know, for about a year, year and a half. And the real challenge uh, bringing my team in was, you know, we need to relaunch the VMware in general into the cloud. And in order to do that, we're going to sort of build a primary service and then a number of halo services around that. And we're going to do this with partners. And, um, at the time, we, we chose the biggest and, and the baddest and the best cloud partner you could think of with AWS, and we launched VMware Cloud on AWS. The team was brought on to kind of build out this go-to-market motion, including marketing and web and everything like that, in about six months, and launched VMworld. And, and that's what we did um, in close partnership with a solutions marketing team led by a gentleman named Mike Hulme, who built this fantastic messaging platform for us to, to utilize to really articulate the benefits of this and um, working, you know, again, hand in hand with them. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. We built out an entire demand gen, an entire events, an entire partner marketing program and team to support this. And, 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 and since then, we've subsequently launched 20 cloud services, including uh, cloud services that replicate the majority of the VMware, both cloud management, as well as vRealize, virtualization services, and other things like that in the cloud. And now you can 
purchase or, or utilize a VMware SDDC from all of the major cloud providers um, with, again, our, our primary partner being AWS. Let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with the nest are we not this is where we can go to feel honest and trusted and you can share those deepest darkest demand gen secrets what would you say is your demand gen strategy at vmware demand gen strategy at vmware is the relentless pursuit of whatever works i tend not to be dogmatic about these things Uh, i work with a team that is always challenging me uh, always pushing me to think differently, and I work in a in a company with a the long history, a long storied history of innovation. And so, I'm not a big believer. I, I think you learn a lot from experience. I think you learn what mistakes not to make again. But I think anytime you go into any demand gen or or any other marketing situation, thinking that you have it cooked, you're probably cooked. No matter what things are changing always. And you may come at it thinking, I know the audience. I know the market. I know the benefits. Here's the play I'm going to run. But if you're talking 12 months later, things change. Things may have changed in the buyer's mind. Things may have changed in the benefits that are important to them. Things may have changed even in the way they want to interact. And then you start shifting it around, like different audiences, Different audiences mean different channels are going to be successful, different messages, different benefits. And, and so I, because we support as many services as we do, we tend to look for ways that we can first identify the audience. Uh, secondly, identify the action we want them to take. And thirdly, identify the measurement. How do we measure whether we're successful or not? And I think if you think about kind of demand in that triangle, right, audience, action, measurement, you can be very flexible in everything else, right? That's kind of how I think about things. I I don't, as I said before, I I, I don't like to come in and say like, great, okay, we know how we're going to get this audience to take this action. And so these are the tactics we're going to use. Let's just start, start the very basics. What do we want people to do and who are they? Yeah. And so who are those folks? What are your personas or the buying committee? What do they look like? Sure. Uh, Depends on the cloud service, right? So we've got cloud services that support everything from um, folks running education and um, and enablement platforms with our VMware learning platform products. These are products in which you can build an entire digital learning curriculum with gamification and a bunch of other pieces like that all built in. And you can do that over the course of, call it six weeks, get something out there. That's a very, very different buying center than, like I said, our Halo product, which is VMware Cloud on AWS, primarily going to be a cloud admin or a cloud architect in concert with their partner on the uh, the sysadmin side, who's looking to migrate a growing number of workloads to the cloud. And that's a very different audience than our um, than our cloud management products folks looking at automation cloud or folks looking at uh, even our Tanzu products and our Tanzu products are for buyers that are building applications. Uh, Net net is we're we're always looking at that IT buyer of some sort, but there's a lot of folks involved with different conversations. And so we don't tend to focus on a single audience. We tend to focus on a number of different audiences and a number of different streams to get to those audiences. When it seems also you have a, a bunch of different verticals that you're, that you're working on as well. Always, yeah. There's, there's always the the vertical, 
right? And then there's also the size of the company. And then there's also, what are the products that they're already buying, right? And we've got this great product called Cloud Health. And um, one of my good friends, uh, Sarah, runs that team and runs all the demand gen on that team. But she's focused on a completely different audience, a completely different customer buying center, and completely different benefits. But we share a lot of overlap, right? And so we'll, we'll spend a lot of time together talking about what's working and what's not working, utilizing the VMware demand engines. And so how, what does your org structure look like, specifically like marketing uh, and then demand gen within it? We run a pretty lean team here. My org is comprised of a demand and growth team, partner marketing team that runs demand and growth with partners or alongside of partners. I've got a SaaS customer experience team, and then I've got uh, a RevOps team. And underneath that, in the demand side, I've got split off among sort of always on marketing, specific campaigns, and then we'll call it digital, social, and, and, and video, right? So all of the different platforms. And, you know, what'll happen is, you know, folks will plug in, we, we have sort of an agency model, right? So we'll plug into an existing service or a new service and say, great, okay, so let's start with the outcome we're all working towards. And my SaaS ops team will jump in there and say, great, let's build a reverse funnel based on either a revenue number, an average deal size, or a logo number. From that, we'll build out kind of a quarter by quarter reverse funnel we want to hit. We'll use some standardized new service type of conversion ratios. We'll train up the BDRs on it. And then we'll push that into the demand team and say, great, here is the number of you know, contacts, number of AQLs that we're looking to generate. We'll talk to the BDR teams and we're looking at these conversion ratios for the opportunities. And then we'll talk to the sales team. And then my RevOps team will sit on top of all that and really be a pipeline architect there. So um, the, the folks on that team are tasked with day-to-day looking at the pipeline and its performance and where things are getting stuck for all the services we support. So it's, it's, not, it's not a full functional alignment, but it's functional alignment plus agency approach to service those, those, uh, those new services. And so, you know, you mentioned the partner strategy. This is definitely something that's, you know, a little unique to you all or to anyone with a partner strategy, but it's something that's definitely unique. How do you look at, you know, your partner strategy as it relates to, you know, your marketing teams? Sure. I think it's twofold, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's partners that are bringing our products to the customer and, and installing them or working to help the customer migrate. And then we've got our, our partners on the cloud services side, like, like AWS and others. And I think we, but we look at these are our sell with and our sell through customers. And we do split that up a little bit, right? Now, interestingly enough, we have some customers that are both sell with and sell through, right? So some of our BCPB partners are actually both uh, hosting providers as well as uh, integration SI partners. But, you know, I, I think that splitting those up a little bit gives us the ability to run side-by-side demand gen type programs with our sell with partners. And, you know, those could be, you know, in, in the past in-person events, not obviously not currently, but in-person events, they could be uh, aligned with digital plus in-person plus ABM. And, and again, you, you, you're figuring out ways to either target specific verticals, specific categories of customers along with yourself, sell with partners, sorry. And then on the sell through partner side, you're really trying to enable them to be more, I'll call it sassy 
for lack of a better word. It's appropriate. It's a double, it's a double meaning. <laughs> exactly. But you know, a lot of these sort of sell through partners are used to a more licensed sales model, but increasingly we're seeing them lean in, learn, and, and, and really contribute to even our understanding of our SaaS go-to-market. And so some of these, some of these sell-through partners are coming to us saying, great, we've got an entire cloud migration practice. And you know, you put the right customers in front of us, and we're not just gonna, you know, we're not just gonna install uh, uh, you know the SDDC from VMware, right? We're gonna help them migrate their workloads to a VMware cloud be productive on them, understand the need for cloud management and other, other uh, management capabilities, understand the need for security. And we're going to get them there and get them consuming way faster than either you VMware or they could buy themselves. And I think that's the key, right, is, is helping those partners think about a world where consumption is the goal and growth and in-customer growth as opposed to kind of, you know, just, just kind of getting the license sold. Yeah, that makes sense. And like I said, I mean, our, our partners are kind of, in some ways, even leading us on those. They're, they're really good ones. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, well, are you working with more than just the marketing team on, on those initiatives? Because it seems like you're pretty tied into probably, I mean, I would imagine sales, sales engineers, you know, all, you know, all that stuff. That's right. Yeah, I, I think you have to be. I mean, I, I think you have to be tied into sales, sales engineers, and PSO. What's PSO? Uh, sorry, professional services organizations. Got it. Yeah. Both within VMware, our professional services organization, as well as our, our partner professional services organizations. You know, when you look at customers that have a, I'll call it a low cloud propensity or perhaps a small footprint in the cloud currently, then what they're struggling with is how do they get not just their workloads into the cloud, but how do they understand how to migrate them not just once, but migrate multiple workloads to the cloud back and forth, understand the value of where things should sit and actually up-level their understanding of, you know, the hybrid cloud in general. And so I, I think we started off talking about the need for demand to, to look beyond the AQL, I guess, or the MQL. Um, and I think that's, that's what, that's why, where I think you know, our, our team does a very, very good job. Our team does a great job at working directly with sales, working directly with PSO, helping drive consumption, helping drive upsell, cross-sell. And, and we do that because, you know, we look at it as our job continues, you know, sort of cradle to grave of the customer. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you have a, a better focus on um, on the depth of engagement rather than just the pushing people to acquisition, the the volume of engagement. Yeah, yeah. So again, I'll, I'll soapbox for a minute here, but but I hey, fire away. <laughs> I and, and my team were all big believers in a consistent customer story. You know, a lot of times uh, customers will hear kind of one bit of messaging and benefit from the demand team, and then when it passes to a BDR or the sales team, it changes, shifts a little bit, and that's going to cause a slowdown. Right? That's going to cause a slowdown in your funnel uh, progression. And then they'll hear something different when they start using the product. And, the, and so, you know, I, I, I'm, you know I, I've been a big believer and, and my team, you know, uh, helps support this, that, you know, the customer messaging, the customer conversation should be consistent. And the benefits that this audience is going to derive should remain consistent from front to back. 
And then when they land in product, they should immediately be able to execute to achieve those benefits. The longer the time frame is from sort of hand raising activity to benefit achievement, the fewer things, the fewer customers you're going to convert. And then you'll just see leaky funnel left and right. Yeah, that consistency of uh, of brand message hitting the promise, it seems like it's something with partners would be a much more difficult proposition potentially because you have you know other cooks in the kitchen with you. But it kind of sounds like you were saying it's almost the opposite where it's like if they're if they're really good partners that they actually help clarify that overview. Yeah, I'm, that's that's a hundred percent accurate. I mean, they've some of our partners have evolved our thinking in terms of how we think about customer benefit, how we think about cloud migration speeds and, and moreover, you know, what is the best path for that customer? You know, uh, you know, we've got a lot of customers who have been VMware customers for years, 10, 15, some even 20 years. And there's a great deal of trust that they have in VMware. And, and I, I think, we can further that trust. We can increase that trust by helping those customers get to the cloud and get to where they want to go in the cloud. And you know, a lot of our partners are the ones that are helping us help those customers do that. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm a big believer in the symbiotic relationship of partners and, 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 and a software company. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you can open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. Michael, can you give me three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Uncuttable budget items. Uh, let's see, three? Um, you know, again, dependent on service. Because I, I'm a big believer in that your channels reflect your audiences. But, you know, I think that, you know, you can never go wrong with, I'll call them minus one communities. So these are the watering holes in which your customers kind of live and breathe, where, they, where they're working hard to um, either understand software, connect with their peers, other places like that. You got, you got to learn those immediately. That's, that's one that's uncuttable. You can't, you can't not participate in those. Number two, open source, open source software. If you're selling to or working with developers, know your open source communities, spend time in your open source communities, participate in them. Too often, big software companies come into open source communities and, and you know, kind of knock things over and break windows and, and just, you know, don't play a, a good community citizen. And, and I think that, you know, being a good community citizen means that you have people that are focused on contributing and participating in an open source community. I think those, those, that's two. Third one, I, you know, this may sound a little old school, but I am a huge fan of blogs. I think blogs, in terms of a strong, consistent, repetitive point of contact with a customer, I think they can provide tremendous value, particularly if because it's an ongoing conversation. A lot of content marketing you know, hey, here's a white paper or the top 10 things you need to do this or XXX. And that's a great one touch kind of get some people in the funnel. And that that's interesting. But for me, I'm thinking more about what are the 10 blog posts that I'm going to write this quarter that I'm going to socially promote, that I'm going to get people to repost, that I'm going to get people to hype, that I'm going to include on the back on the back of webinars. 
that people are going to engage in repeatedly. And now here's something kind of interesting that we found is if someone lands on a blog post and from a link on that blog post goes to our site, they are three times more likely to convert than if they've come from anywhere else. So for me, I'm a big fan of, of, of blogs as a way to support a continual conversation with a customer and also to drive conversion. When you say blogs, do you mean your own blogs? Do you mean other people's blogs? Do you mean both? I mean both, yeah. And, and, and again, dependent upon audience, um, that, right? There's two, ways, there's two ways you can do this. You can either bring the horse to water or you can bring water to the horse, right? And uh, you know, my feeling is you meet your customers where they are. And, and again, when you build a strong enough affinity and you build a loyalty within your, your prospect customer base, they'll, they'll find you for sure. And they'll, they'll go to your blog. But when you're just starting off on something, you kind of got to meet them where they are. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you basically listed communities, 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 right? Like it's, it's such a, because all of those things, I think, and you know, what it speaks to is that you want to build a relationship with your prospects and your customers that is enduring, that's that lasts. And it's really hard to do that with ads, right? Like if you're just if you're just creating campaigns that are full of ads when you're selling B2B and super complex sales cycles and having partners involved and all that stuff, it's like you need to work on depth and quality and see and, and those sort of things. You know, we talk a lot on this show about, you know, not making your content calendar, you know, control you sort of a thing that it's like, you can't just, you know, oh, I want to post, you know, three times on Twitter every day, because that's what the algorithm says is the best thing to do. Because then it's kind of a race to bottom for quality, unless you have the team that can post that much engaging stuff, and then kudos to you. But it's so important to be able to like, actually, you know, make things that people in those communities want to engage with. And one of the things that I think really struck out to me too that you said is part of it is about like listening and participating, not just like pushing. And I think that's another key thing is like, if you're going into other, these communities, like go through an value-add way and a value-add way doesn't always mean pushing your stuff. It means, you know, listening and supporting and, you know, like things like sponsorship and dollars and things like that go a long way to make events happen, to make sponsoring newsletters, those sort of things. Like those publications care. You matter to them, especially if they're smaller and more niche. Right. Right. And I think what maybe we're, we're both hinting at is this is a seismic shift that's occurred over the last little while. And it's been accelerated uh, with some of the customer protection protocols that have gone into place, which is, I'll call it broadcast marketing, is increasingly becoming less effective. You know, whether it's an email campaign, whether it's display ads, whether it's, you know, tweeting out, it's less effective and more expensive. And as GDPR, as California Protection, um, oh, what's the name of the law? I'm forgetting the name of the California Protections start to come in and become even more stringent and you have country by country level customer protections, it's going to get more expensive and it's going to get more difficult. And just think about your own email inbox. How many unsolicited emails do you get on a daily basis and how many of them do you actually pay attention to? Oh, totally. Or, you know, you're even the phone calls, the, I mean, election seasons, uh, election seasons, the greatest barometer for us of how much garbage we get in our lives because of how many cold calls we get. Yep. And you're like, you know, the, the whole idea that it's like, 
you know, press five to, to remove from our call list. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? How is this real life that I can just, yep, yep. you know, have my phone, you know, if you're on a zoom or something like that, it's going to interrupt you anyways. Right. right. It's like, so you're right. literally exactly. interrupting your work with some random person calling, you know, that's like, I used to live in South Carolina and it's like, you know, someone's running for office there. You're like, give me a break. Well, I mean, that, and that's just it. It's like the, the signal to noise ratio is so low, right? And, and, and the value that you get out of those random emails, random phone calls, you know, random tweets, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you begin to filter it out. And so the way that you're going to project a message, the way you're going to reach your audience, the way that you're going to project a, a benefit is going to be through your interaction with a community or uh, an individual person within that community and not through a random email you send or an, uh, a display ad that you put up there. I mean, those are great. If you're, you've got someone who's leaned in, raised their hand and wants to learn more. Sure. Absolutely. But in terms of, uh, you know, how many emails do you have to send to get one person to raise their hand? Versus you spend that same amount of time authentically participating in a community or even building your own community, if that's the right thing to do. The return on that investment, both in terms of what you learn and can pull back into the product, and in terms of you know, people that actually raise their hand that go through an entire procurement process with you, it's night and day. It's just night and day. And I think that seismic shift to community-based conversational marketing I think is a really important shift to highlight. I completely agree. Uh, I'm curious, how do you measure success? We talk to a lot of people about you know marketing and KPIs and things like that. Marketing has one measure of success. Is the business growing and successful? Is there revenue coming through the door? That That is marketing's only measure of success. There's a lot of things that you can measure in terms of like your community participation, uh, in terms of you can measure, you know, the number of times that you're actually authentically having a conversation, whether it be within blogs or Twitter, you can measure the participation, you can measure the interaction. But when it comes down to it, marketing, I feel, should measure itself on one thing and one thing only, revenue through the door. Do you have any favorite campaigns that you've done over the past couple of years? Oh, I have a lot of favorites. Um, you know, I, I think we did this. So this is going back a number of years, but I, I worked for a company called Appcelerator, and we had the uh, the one of the first mobile application development platforms out there, and certainly the most complete one. I feel maybe I'm a little biased, sure, but I, I think you, you do have to love the products you market a little bit. I mean, even even the ones you don't love as much, you have to love them a little bit in order to be good at it. I think you got it too. I, I, you know, I'm sure there are people out there that would disagree, but I, that's how I always felt. I felt like if I was selling or marketing a product, like I got to believe in this thing. Right. You got to love it a little bit. Um, so like I said, we had this, this mobile application development platform. And at the time this is, you know, we'll call it iPhone three, iPhone four days. You know, most enterprises were like, eh, this mobile stuff, you know, you had, they had like one or two, I'll call them garbage apps or like, you know, meeting room finders or, you know, really bad expense management platform. Um, or they had their customer facing million dollar um, application that, you know, that's really more owned by the, the, the sort of the advertising team. Um, but nobody was taking a real strategic approach to sort of mobile application development, the same way they do on the web and other things like that. 
And so what we did is we put together a quarterly report that went out every couple of months, every three months or so. And we surveyed a bunch of mobile application developers. And we took those findings and we put them into a report. Uh, we had our friends at IDC kind of help us out with some of the analysis. And um, you know, every quarter, this report would come out and it would talk about, hey, here are the big trends. And it would really highlight the, the shift, the shift that we were seeing in, in mobile away from kind of one-off applications or purpose-built applications to a strategic approach. You know, we had people in there that were building 100 plus applications for their enterprise. And it, it changed the conversation. It changed the conversation the market was having and it changed the conversation we were having with our customers. And, and that, that we, did, we ran that for 2013 through 2015. So, you know, a couple of years. Uh, at one point in time, uh, that was over 70% of the leads we generated and over 300 press mentions per report. So that was, that was a really good kind of great campaign. Uh, so I think a more recent uh, campaign that I'm really proud of, um, and I'll take little to no credit for, for it. It's mostly uh, my partners on the uh, Tanzu marketing side, uh, Scott Buchanan, Eva Leong, Dana Silverman. They put together what's called Cube Academy. And Cube Academy is a Kubernetes education platform. Um, one of the big sort of missing pieces in the Kubernetes pieces, we'll call it basic education, but education that people can learn about Kubernetes, learn how to use Kubernetes and, and really start being productive with the technology quickly. They put together a website and 20 plus five minute, 10 minute sessions to really teach people about Kubernetes. And we supported it at launch and we supported it with driving people to it. And I think I remember correctly, within the first week, we had over 20,000 people consuming um, Kubernetes information and, and, and really going through the entire course catalog. Again, when, when someone, as a demand gen professional, when someone hands you something that is super hot, super interesting, super timely, it's always a, a great advantage that you have. But what I loved about this, I think, was, yeah, it was fantastic and it was well-produced and it was you know exactly what people were looking for. But it was also a way in which we could build that community. We could both give back to our, our traditional sysadmin VI admin community, help them up-level their skills, and at the same time, lean into the Kubernetes Academy and, and help everybody become a, a better sort of citizen of that community. So um, yeah, those were two of my favorites, uh, both one from the past and one more recent. I love stuff like that. It's like the ultimate, um, you know, if you can ever get, slightly ahead of the curve and just like dive into an introduction to blank, whatever the blank is, and like create a best in class content. I mean, and this is something that we've, we've kind of been talking about for a while today is like, if you can make the absolute highest quality thing for your audience, for your community, that is a huge value add. That's something that they can't get somewhere else. A, they're going to love it. B, when you push it out across a bunch of those different channels and promote it, people are going to dig it, you know, and they're going to, they're going to engage with it. And then it makes the actual ad spends that you're doing that much more fruitful. So how do you view your website? That's a good question. Um, I am, I, I think the, the website, frankly, is, is the nexus of a lot of the demand gen 
and post demand gen activities. It's where you want to send people to convert. And it's where you're going to send people after they've converted to learn more and to consume. And so I, I tend to lean very heavily into the website being a, um, both a destination as well as a conversion place. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, typically I want someone when they come to the website, not necessarily to, you know, leisurely peruse and, you know, dig into things and, and other things like that. Uh, I want them to convert relatively quickly. We have, we have a goal of 2.2 clicks or 2.8 right now. So we're getting there, but we like people to convert in about 2.2 clicks. And that conversion may be, hey, I'm signing up for a newsletter. That conversion may be, a, hey, I'm signing up for a trial or I'm buying some services. But afterwards, we're going to continue to send you back to that website so you can learn a bit more about the product. You can learn how to onboard successfully. You can learn what consumption looks like. You can get great customer stories that are going to give you ideas. But you know, I really look at the, um, the website as kind of conversion first and informational second. Um, the other thing I point out is that I, I think, you know, looking at looking at the website as an extension of your customer communications is a good practice. We talked earlier about the need for consistency and message and consistency across all the different channels. And I think the web is no exception there. You land on the web and it's got different iconography, different voice, different benefits. You're going to pause. You're going to slow down. Your expectation is that, you know, the conversation that began on a, on a website of a, of a partner blog that continued through a number of emails or blog posts, you're expecting that's going to continue when you land on the website and when you get into the product. And if it doesn't, then you're going to slow down. And uh, reduction in velocity, reduction in speed is what kills all good demand gen programs. Let's get into our next segment, the dust-up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that is with your board, your sales team, a competitor, or just anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Uh, yeah, uh, a lot of memorable dust-ups in my career. <laughs> um, typically, they're with my closest partners. So a as a marketer, I, I believe that your closest partners are your product teams and your sales teams. And if you've got a good sales team, they're always pushing you. They're always trying to get you to deliver to them more and better customers through the front door. They're trying to you know, help you build better messaging and better audience-driven marketing. And when you're not delivering those things to your sales team or, or you're missing the ball, they should call you on the carpet. And they have. You know, I, I had this extremely memorable argument with my, uh, my VP of sales. You know, basically, it was the standard sales marketing argument. You know, you're not, you're not giving us enough stuff, and the stuff you are giving us is garbage. And at that point in time, I realized that, you know, whether he was right or wrong, that was his perception. And so I need to work closer with him to understand what it exactly is he looking for? What is working? What is he closing? And how can I do a better job at putting more of those in front of him? 
I've also had many, many memorable dustups with, with my partners on the, on the product teams. And, you know, the product teams always want to build products that customers are going to use. That is the best, that's the testament to a, to a, a top-notch product team. They are genuinely joyful when a, pro- when a product is being used in the way it's meant to by a customer. And, you know, when you're not talking about it in the right way, when you're targeting the wrong audiences, when you're, when you're doing these things incorrectly, or they're building a product that, you know, quite frankly, people aren't adopting, you should have those conversations and you should be able to have those conversations in a transparent way. And, you know, I, I talk about lots of dust-ups with sales and lots of dust-ups with marketing, but that's because we all genuinely care about what we're doing and being successful. And, and I'll also point out that that VP of sales that I mentioned that we had that, you know, that, that, that almost month-long long argument about, you know, what a customer should look like and how they should, what they should be thinking when they come through that door remains one of my best friends and remains one of my closest partners whenever I need to, to sort of delve into the mind of sales a bit more. And on the, on the product side, same thing. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, one of my great mentors in life is, is a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Rendy, who remains the, the best product person I've ever worked with in my life. But you got to have those arguments to get better at your job. And you got to have those arguments to really come to the table with a shared understanding of what the goals are. You spent a long time as an analyst. And I'm curious, like, are there any things that like, you know, you learned as an analyst that really help you as a marketing leader? Every day, every day, the things I learned as an analyst helped me as a marketing leader. A couple key points. Um, as, as an analyst, you tend to spend six, eight, 10 hours a day, every day, talking to enterprise buyers, users, adapters. And, you know, that's, that's a gift. That is a real gift because it is an honest, transparent conversation about what they're looking for in specific products and how they buy and the rhythm of an enterprise purchase and why they're throwing this vendor out or why they chose that vendor over the other or what they really want to accomplish with this particular project. And you spend, you know, we'll call it 10 years plus doing that. And you really build a deep understanding and an empathy for that enterprise IT team. And, you know, some of them, I've, I've been to some of my clients' daughter's weddings and, 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 and built relationships that span decades with them. And you understand a few key things. Um, and I always try and, and, and teach my marketers these things. As marketers, as product people, as startup people, we spend 10, 12, sometimes 20 hours a day thinking about our product. The average customer spends 20 minutes a quarter thinking about your product. So you have a very limited amount of time to earn that ear. And, and so you got to think a little bit about that. The other thing to think about is nine times out of 10, the reason why they're buying something isn't the reason you think it is. And that's why you have to follow up when you win a deal and when you lose a deal with a conversation. Why did you buy it? Why did you buy X over Y? You did a bake-off, what won? What was the thing that, that pushed you over the edge? Was it pricing? Was it packaging? What was it? And it's that, that focus on research and understanding your audience. Those are the two things I took away from being an analyst and, and carry with me every day. I love that 20 minutes a quarter uh, thinking about your product. That's great. 
Okay, let's get into our quick hits. These questions are quick, quick questions, quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified.com. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Michael, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Is there a hobby that you've picked up in shelter in place? Hobby that I picked up, coffee roasting. I picked that up during shelter in place because uh, I was not going out to the coffee shop to get beans anymore. So I ordered them in now 60 pound bags and roast my own coffee. Do you have a book or podcast or TV show that you've been binging recently? Uh, for, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a daily listener. So I listen to the, the, the New York daily um, hacks on tap with the upcoming election stuff, really getting into that. I just finished uh, behave uh, by Robert Sapolsky and the how not to be wrong. The power of mathematical thinking by Jordan Ellenberg, two great books that really expand your mind. One is a, kind of a way to think about analytics and statistics. And the other one is a book that thinks about how humans make uh, decisions. And uh, as as marketers, that's something we should all think about. What piece of advice would you give to first-time head of marketing when trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? I would say two things. If you're a first-time head of marketing, spend a boatload of time with your sales team. Uh, Really understand the conversations they're having sit in on sales calls, sit in on BDRs calls, get to know the customer and the conversation extremely well. And that'll help guide your demand gen strategies. Secondly, know your product. As we said earlier, in order to be a solid marketer, you got to love your product a little bit. So get to know it, get to know it in and out, have that conversation with product and engineering. And that'll also buy you a ton of credibility when it comes to you know, the technical aspects of the product itself. Well, Michael, that's it. That's all we got for today. Any, uh, any final thoughts, anything to plug? No, just great conversation. I've been really enjoying the podcast, uh, as I did some research, uh, and listened to a couple episodes before I, I joined and uh, I just think you guys are doing a great job. So, so keep up the good work and uh, I'll keep learning from y'all. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. Thanks again. Take care. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.